Mark 6 will be our text this morning, specifically verses 14 to 29. 14 to 29 of Mark chapter 6. You know from our study the last Lord's Day that we spoke of the contrast that Scripture speaks of between the righteous and the wicked. And I proposed to you last time, and I'm sure it resonated with your own experience, that at times it seems to us that the wicked prosper. Things seem to go right for them in their lives. They don't seem to be punished by God. Even the psalmist in Psalm 74 has recounted the same concept. The righteous, on the other hand, are the ones who seem to struggle, even with things at times, or at least it appears, material needs, financial needs, suffering persecution. I just read again this week of the terrible suffering and death of Christians in the Sudanese territory, in Egypt, in the Middle East. It's a very, very great dilemma. And it seems as though there is a disparity between the prospering of the wicked and the persecution and falling of the righteous. And in our study of Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29, we've seen through the lens of the life of John the Baptist that once again the righteous appear to be overtaken, to be persecuted for no apparent reason, and in some cases like John the Baptist even to be killed. And while John the Baptist is being treated this way, you have the wicked ruler Herod Antipas, who appears to have nothing but happiness and blessing and material wealth with all the perceived benefits that go along with these things. You also have his wicked mistress Herodias, who despises John the Baptist, the prophet of God, and speaks against him with her immoral relationship with the king. She rebels against John and everything he stands for, and yet it certainly appears that she has the last word. But as I told you last time, remember that the final chapter, at least in space and time, has not yet been written, and that God is the one who will right all wrongs. He is the one who will avenge all evil, and He is the one who will, if not temporarily, eternally protect the saints. And He alone will be the one who determines the perfect answer to all questions. The writing of all accounts. The one who, as Peter did say, will be the one who judges the earth and will do it righteously or rightly. I remember several years ago hearing the account of an old missionary couple who had served in a foreign land and had served in what appeared to be relative obscurity. It would have been assumed, I guess, on every front that uh, their ministry was not large. Uh, their ministry appeared uh, to be nothing at all, really. Ministering in a foreign place uh, under the cloud of not much success. And apparently after some 40-plus years of ministry, they were returning to the United States for their retirement time from missionary service and ministry here in this country. And apparently as they boarded the ship to return across the Atlantic, it uh, just so happened, quote-unquote, 
that they were on the same ship as Theodore Roosevelt, who, as you know, was a prominent figure at that time and who was also a big game hunter, a sportsman. And he apparently was on a big game hunt, and he was returning at the same time on this great ship. And as they neared the port in New York, all of the media and all of the throng of well-wishers and all of the pomp and circumstance surrounded the arrival again of Theodore Roosevelt to this country. And as you would imagine, uh, at that time, no less than ours, although less electronic, all of the uh, president's doings publicly uh, are recorded and flashed and videoed. And every word that he says from a public venue is, is seen and everyone is crowding around waiting to shake hands with the president. And it was no different then. And as that ship docked, and as Theodore Roosevelt departed, all of the crush of the crowd wanting to see the, the great man, all, all wanting to uh, touch him if they could. And this small little couple, old and very tired, quietly in obscurity, walked off the ship to the affirmation of no one. And as they were driving away, the wife, probably hurt and discouraged, said to her husband, why? Why? We've served the Lord, we've done what He wanted us to do, and look at the contrast. Look at all of the pomp and the circumstance and all of the flashing of the light bulbs and all of the affirmation of the crowd toward Theodore Roosevelt. And what about us? And her husband, being a very wise man, turned to her and with one sentence simply said, Honey, we're not home yet. You know, I think about that and I see that as a wonderful affirmation of the answer of the ages. Why the apparent flourishing of the wicked and why the apparent and even real persecution and death of the righteous because we're not home yet. God has a plan that is moving inexorably forward, and that plan will not be thwarted. And though it might appear on the surface that the wicked flourish and the righteous are persecuted, that is only momentary. And as Paul affirmed to the Corinthians, that that momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. And that no eye has seen and no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. And then you, in your mind, transfer all of that which I have just said to the life and ministry of this man, John the Baptist. A man who was energized by the Spirit of God even from his womb from his mother's womb, even from the place where his mother carried him, not knowing anything and not knowing what would befall him and growing to a point of understanding his ministry and being clothed with a clothing manufacturer that should be fired, being the recipient of locusts and wild honey, and again ministering in what appeared to be a, a wilderness of relative obscurity. A man who preached righteousness even to the 
highest levels of leadership in the land to the religious teachers of Israel, calmly yet definitively preaching to them that they were a brood of vipers who were trying to avoid the wrath of God and needed to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, and a man who would even stand up in front of the highest levels of government in his place and say, it is unlawful for you to have her, and would continually say so. Now this John the Baptist, this man who was living this way and experiencing both the brunt of the persecution at the hands of wicked men, and yet who was continually preaching righteousness. He knew. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what the score was. He knew exactly what was happening in that very prison cell for which he was sitting. He knew that his end was near. And yet, he could continue to say, I must decrease and Christ must increase. That was a, that was a godly man. And you have before you in this text what I introduced to you last time and what we'll conclude this morning are the characteristic contrast between the wicked and the righteous. You remember I said to you last time that the contrast of the wicked and the righteous are these. Herod Antipas, the ruler of the land. What appears on the surface to be power just beneath the surface is cowardice, the fear of man. And what appears on the outside to be a strong value of leadership, to make, a, to make an oath, uh, to be constant in his uh, consistency of leadership. Yet underneath the surface is a man who is bowing to the manipulation and shrewdness of a wicked woman. And you have John the Baptist. On the surface, a person who appears to be beaten, discouraged, despondent, and yet down deep in the portals of his soul is a man who trusts in the sovereignty of God. A man who realizes that the end of his ministry is near and that since he was the forerunner of Messiah, the forerunning is over. His ministry is over. His life virtually ebbed out. And yet he's calm. A person who trusts completely in God. Let's find out a few more characteristics from this text. They're striking. Look at verse 21 as we pick up the narrative. In Mark 6, 21, the Bible says, A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Now, as you read those words in your Bible, understand this, that it is no trite phrase that says, A strategic day came. This was a very strategic day. It was a strategic day both for Herod Antipas and a strategic day for Herodias and her wicked scheming. This is obviously a day for which Herodias herself could orchestrate the wicked execution of John the Baptist. This was a day also that was strategic for Herod Antipas because it says 
Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet. And you would assume that as a ruler of that time, they gave lavish banquets, and this was no different. This was a lavish banquet that would probably even go beyond the rest. Why? Because it was Herod's own birthday, which gives you a little bit of insight into the pride of this man, giving a birthday celebration for his own birthday. And this strategic day comes, and the recipients of such a celebration are his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. All of the highfalutins are there. All of the hottentots, all of the people who are somebody, as we might say, were showing up there. The inner circle of the governor. And this would have been a very strategic time. And it was strategic for the Lord himself as well. Verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. By the way, the word that's used for daughter here was a young girl of marriageable age, probably around 14. Now, we might think that that was an incredible thing if it were to occur in our day, but remember, they married much younger then, and this would have been a girl who had just become a woman, and she obviously was tasked with the responsibility to please Herod and his dinner guests. By the way, her name was Salome. We believe that this particular dance, which for this particular gathering would not have been an acceptable custom. Why? Because number one, this particular dance would have been a sexually provocative dance, and that would have been reserved alone for the sexually provocative of the time, prostitutes, women of ill repute. It would have occurred not in a king's palace, but in some other banquet hall, uh, away from the royalty, uh, away from the leadership of the land. This would have been something that some in the leadership would have objected to, but apparently not because of the one whom, who is giving it, Herod Antipas himself. And shockingly, not just some woman that they had secured for this uh, sexually provocative dance, but Herod's own daughter, or at least the daughter of Herodias. And it must have been designed to captivate her watchers. Because usually these kinds of dances, as the text suggests, were regularly performed by those who would have attempted at least to secure this young woman for their own ends. It must have so pleased Herod that he made two distinct remarks. Look at the latter part of verse 22. The king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Boy, that must have been some dance. And in the oath-taking of the time, that was a very, very uh, serious thing to do. This would not have been a trivial statement on the part of the king. In fact, you remember back in the book of Esther in chapter 5, when Esther approached the king and he was so pleased with her life that when he asked her, what is it that you want, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That was a very, very common statement of the time, and it spoke of a very serious oath and an intention on the part of a person of royalty to grant that oath. 
And so this was a major statement, a major concession on the part of the king. And if she might have said, I do want half of your kingdom, he would be obligated to do so. You remember Jephthah and he gave his vow? And even though it was a foolish vow that he followed through on and that God should never have seen him follow through on that because he realized or should have that that was not obedience to God, but it was rashness and foolishness, but he followed through on the vow anyway. You see, at that time, unlike our time, a person's yes was their yes, and their no was their no. And so the king says, you mark what you want, and I will give it to you, whatever it is. But underneath the surface, we know what's going on. It's pride, isn't it? Why is it pride? Well, for one, Verse 17 said, Herod had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias. And, verse 20 says, for Herod was afraid of John. And for another, verse 23, and he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Why? Because he was fearful of not looking to his military commanders and lords and leading men as though he couldn't come through on any promise he would make. This man is filled with both pride and the fear of man at the same time. He, because of his dinner guests, the Bible says. Now that's the next characteristic wicked sin, the sin of pride it's not only the fear of man and it's not only vengeful hatred on the part of Herodias, but it's the sin of pride on the part of both. Herodias wants what she wants when she wants it because she doesn't like the man who is speaking out against her immorality. And Herod Antipas does not want to look as though he can't deliver on his oaths. And because of his dinner guests and because of the commanders and leaders and because maybe even of Herodias herself. He doesn't want to look as though he was shamed. And so you have the characteristic sin of pride in Herod Antipas. You know what else you have? You have the characteristic sin of duplicity. We don't use that word much, but duplicity is the conniving and the scheming of someone to produce whatever it is they want and they'll use anyone they can for their own ends. And can you imagine this? Here's Herodias. She has a daughter of around 14 years of age, and she actually uses her daughter for the purpose of gaining what she wants. That's incredible. Because the Bible says, And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And even if there weren't any scheming beforehand to produce this question, if it were a question that the mother didn't anticipate, what should have been her answer? Listen, this is something between you and the king. This is something that I cannot ask for. I know what's in my heart. I have sinned there. I want John the Baptist to be dealt with, but I dare not ask that. I don't give you an answer. Find an answer somewhere else. But what does she do? She said, I want the head of John the Baptist. The Bible says immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You know, 
if, if this weren't in the Bible, I think we'd say, did this really happen? This dinner party is going on. This 14-year-old girl is dancing before these commanders and before Herod. He makes a foolish oath. He's now been duped into back, being backed into a corner. And now she asks the unthinkable. And Herodias was, I'm sure, silently in the background, giddy. Banquet setting, I have him now. You say, why did she want the head of John the Baptist on a platter? Probably for a couple of reasons. One, just pride, saying, aha, I have it. And secondly, probably because she wanted tangible evidence of the unmistakable reality of John the Baptist's death. I want to see it with my own eyes. I want to know that it happened. I don't want you just to tell me that he was executed. I want to see it for myself. That's how clear this sin is in her heart. The shrewdness of a sinister woman. And of course, because of the king's fear of the people and the fear of John the Baptist's righteousness and holiness, he refused her demand, right? Verse 26. And although the king was very sorry... Yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Wow. Where's the, where's the spiritual fortitude? Where's the stamina in this man? I think if the Apostle Paul were standing right there, he'd probably say to Herod Antipas, act like a man. Be a man. You made an oath. It was wrong. And what you should say now, ruler Herod, is that oath was made, but the request cannot be granted because it goes against the word of God. I will not kill a prophet of God. I won't do that. But because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Now, it is true but the Bible teaches us here that he was very sorry, and apparently he very much was. You don't really see it in this text, but apparently he was very sorry because the word that's used here for sorrow is only used one other place, and it's used in Mark's Gospel, and it's used of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, stay here, wait, be patient, be vigilant, for my soul is deeply grieved. Same word. So apparently, Herod Antipas' soul was deeply grieved. There was genuine sorrow here, but it was not sorrow to the bone, we might say. It wasn't sorrow down to the spiritual core of his life, because there was no spiritual core. He had put off God. He had said no to God's will. He was so pride-stricken that he said to himself, Listen, if I don't grant this request, if I don't follow through on my oath, how am I going to look to my dinner guests? Apparently didn't realize, fully at least, the implications of pride versus murder and thought that murder could actually be a more acceptable option than pride. In fact, J.D. Jones said, Timidity, which takes the form of false pride, is accountable for the moral failure of thousands. Truth. You could have unabashed, unmitigated pride on this side that says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. But then when the 
pendulum of pride swings to the other side, it's called timidity and it's just false pride. You fear what people think, you fear what people do, and so you do whatever they tell you to do whenever they tell you to do it because you fear them and that's really just pride disguised as timidity. Fear of man. The Bible says he was unwilling to refuse her or he would not break with her. Or maybe even he was unwilling to disappoint her. His sorrow had been genuine, but it was shallow, and it wasn't sufficiently strong enough to arouse him to break out of the trap, the ensnaring of the fear of man to which he had foolishly fallen. The context of this passage clearly indicates that he was sorrowful, but he wasn't sorrowful enough to stand against his leaders, to stand against his wife's daughter, to stand against his wife herself, to stand against the crowd, to stand against all of those who would say, you're the king and you can't even grant this oath? Ha! Huh. You can't do anything then. Your kingdom must not be strong. And as he anticipates all of those answers, and in a moment of time, has the choice to say yes or no to his sin. And he said no. And so verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head out on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. The death of a prophet. The death of a great prophet. The death of the greatest prophet. Save Jesus Christ, born of a woman, Jesus himself said. The greatest man born of woman, save Christ, dies an ignominious death. His head is chopped off by the guillotine. But, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Don't for one minute, folks, don't for one minute think that God isn't in absolute sovereign control of every minute detail. Everything. He is absolutely in charge of the universe from the greatest to the smallest. And don't for one minute believe that he isn't in sovereign control of the world's greatest prophet. From the womb to his death, every molecule is arranged in God's perfect decree. Everything. And quietly, the Bible says, verse 29, and the disciples, his disciples, heard about this. They came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. If we listen real closely, we might even hear some of them say, wait a minute, we're not home yet, but he is. Wickedness seems to have the upper hand. But remember, I told you that Herod Antipas, who married his niece, Herodias, who was also his brother Philip's wife, Herod Antipas also had married someone else before this and had divorced her. You know who it was? It was a rival ruler's daughter whom he married to try to appease him so that ultimately later he could take over that kingdom. And because he had given in to his own sin and because he'd married King Eratos' daughter and had divorced her in order to fulfill his wickedness by marrying Herodias, you know what happened? In A.D. 36, Herod Antipas is overthrown by King Eratos 
in vengeance for what he'd done. You see, it appears on the surface that for a time, wickedness is standing strong, but only for a time. And whether it is like Herod Antipas in history being overthrown, or even succeeding until death, or so it seems, he's overthrown in eternity. And John the Baptist, no doubt the first words is that headless body has been severed from its head. He's ushered into the presence of God himself, for which God says, Well done, thou good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You know, John the Baptist, he wasn't weary. He wasn't weepy. He wasn't questioning. His spirit was immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord for which God said, My plan has been fulfilled. No mistakes. No quandaries. Everything's happening just as I will it. And we don't understand it. And what we see on the surface is the death of a godly prophet. God certainly does say, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his godly ones. And you know, if someone was really listening, and if someone was really watching the events, and when they saw the same thing happen to Christ, they could see some striking parallels. William Lane says, between chapters 6 and chapter 15, there are points of parallelism worth noting. Herod's respect for John as a righteous and holy man anticipates Pilate's attitude toward Jesus. Herodias' hatred for John and scheming to achieve his death finds its counterpart in the implacable hatred of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus. Herod's yielding to the pressure imposed by the circumstances is the prelude to Pilate's yielding to the demands of the people. Even the note of burial in a tomb with which the present narrative concludes anticipates the request for the body of Jesus and his burial. You see, if someone were really watching and really listening and really knew their Bible and really saw prophecies fulfilled, they would say, there is yet another for whom this will also happen. And I trust God that he knows exactly what he's doing. What is the end of the righteous? And what is the end of of the wicked. John the Apostle tells us exactly what's going to happen to both. Listen as I read Revelation 6 as we close. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them. Here's the answer. You want to know the destiny of the righteous? You want to know the answer to their question, How long, O Lord? There was given to each of them a white robe. That's a symbol of righteousness. They were dawned in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. White also speaks of purity. All of the avenging of wrong are given to them in the clothing of this purity and righteousness of Christ. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. 
It's just a, just a little while. It may seem long to you. It may seem that the wicked are prospering. It may seem that millennia go by. But just rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. You see, God has a plan. His plan includes the very last righteous persecuted one to be completed. We don't know who that is and we don't know when, but we know, know that God knows. And what about the wicked? Verse 12, John the Apostle says, And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, even the Herod Antipases of the world and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. See, only now do they say, Hide us. They're not even still at this point desiring to be obedient. They just want to be delivered. And then, verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? You see, it will come. It may not come in my time, in your time. It may not come when we desire it, when we think it should. It may not come when we believe it is right and perfect for it to come. But it will be when God says. And when God says it, that settles it. And He will avenge the righteous persecution. And He will give the righteous those white robes. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. And we don't gloat. And we don't glory in the death of the, right, uh, the, the, the uh, death of the wicked. But what we do say is this. God glories. He will be avenging. We have too much sin in our hearts to gloat. God has no sin. And He will be glorified. He's merely at this time, ladies and gentlemen, storing up wrath against the day of wrath for those who are flaunting their lives against Him. And for the righteous, for us, just rest. Rest for a little while longer. And God will be the avenger of all of these things. Oh, what a glorious day when we stand in heaven and every account has been answered. Every glorious end will be achieved because God says it will. What a day. Listen, if you think your trial, your test, your troubles, your pain, and it's real, it is as real as anything is real, is not going to be answered by God, you can take great encouragement, my friend, that God will answer every pain in your heart. He'll bind up every wound, He'll wipe every tear from every eye, and He'll give you everything you ever wanted and more as a righteous man or woman. And when you righteously stand before Him, He'll give you the righteousness of His own Son in absolute fullness. Boy, what a glorious day. And if you're wondering about the wicked, and if you're concerned about our country and our world coming to the place of absolute degradation, God will avenge 
every ounce of it. And He will be glorified in body. Let's pray together. Our God, You will certainly in the day of wrath avenge every one of those, like the psalmist said, who flaunt themselves, whose rebellion ascends every day continually. You'll right those wrongs. And for those who suffer, for those Sudanese Christians, for those true believers in the Middle East, for those around our world, for those missionaries who have lived in obscurity, who have suffered the pain of ridicule and scorn, and those who have even been beaten and those who have been killed. They just need to rest a little while longer. And when the last comes in, the full, the full wrath and the fury of God will be unleashed. And they'll be comforted while the wicked are punished. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that there is no one in this worship center today who could be counted among the wicked that they would flee to Christ, that they would desire to be clothed in His righteousness, to be delivered from the wrath to come. I pray that any discouraged soul who is sitting here and wondering how long, O oh Lord, that they would be comforted, that they would be encouraged, that the judge of the entire earth will do what is right. We ask that you would give us every day a sense of this contrast between the righteous and the wicked so our perspective is balanced, clear. Our perceptions are not muddied by the sin of ourselves or others. May you grant us this kind of perspective throughout the rest of our days. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.